You know, the Bible is God's way of pulling back the curtain so that we can understand what is really going on. We can see with our eyes and hear with our ears and touch and taste and smell. And, and in that way, we get a, a, a tiny sliver of an idea of what is happening in the world. And Enlightenment philosophers such as John Locke, whose ideas have helped to shape our time, would tell us that this is the only way we can know truth, by sensual experience. But this is the only way we can know what is happening around us. And then we can reflect upon that experience, and that's the only way we understand knowledge. If you ever find yourself staring in disbelief today, when you hear ostensibly intelligent people who run our government and teach in our universities espouse the most bizarre opinions that seem to turn reality on its head. And it's, it's hard to overstate what is happening. And you wonder why our society has lost its senses and it appears to be running headlong after a path of destruction. This is, this is the, the long-term impact of letting only what we experience inform our imagination. And it is through the imagination or how we make sense of the world logically and morally that we decide what is right and good and true. But those who know and love the scripture have an imagination that is informed by a different reality, the reality. Because on every page of scripture, God himself clears away the thick fog of short-sighted, merely human ideas to reveal to us what is really going on. Notice James' opening question in verse 1. What causes quarrels and fights among you? You know, we could answer this question in a lot of different ways using human wisdom from our culture based on what we observe about human nature. We fight because we're trying to show dominance, the survival of the fittest. The stronger, more intelligent ones among us are going to rise to the top. Some would call it a mental disorder. Some would even say that we fight because we don't love ourselves enough. But what's really going on? The Lord tells us through his author, James, who's writing to his flock that's been scattered abroad from Jerusalem, mainly for persecution, and now they're, they're gathering in local house churches throughout the empire. He tells them the answer to this question. He says, when you get into fights in your church, it's because your passions are at war within you. You can't see that, but it's true. You can't sense it with the physical senses, but it's reality. And what he means by that, as we have learned, is that there's a wrestling match going on in the heart and the mind of the believer between our human desires and the image of Christ that the Holy Spirit of God is trying to form in us. And what Paul tells us in Galatians 5 is that the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the spirit is against the flesh and these two are opposed to one another. Uh, Paul is a little more specific than, than James here. Who could have known that this is really what's going on inside? We feel its effects, but we can't observe it. The Bible is our only source for this knowledge. So James goes on to narrate what, somewhat metaphorically what this struggle looks like. Verse 2, he says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. If this was actual murder, we'd probably have a different letter at this point, okay? So this, he's, 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 he's giving us a, a, a real-world picture of spiritually what's happening when we're at war with one another. It's unthinkable. 
He says, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. That's describing someone who claims to be a believer in Christ, but what he craves, he desires so badly, he's willing to destroy relationships with one another to get it. He wants something that is not in the will of God, either something he's not supposed to have or something he's not supposed to have now or something he's trying to get in the wrong way. And he doesn't have to care who he has to go over or around or through to get it. But it gets worse than that. Not only, not only is he willing to destroy his relationship with other believers, he's willing to destroy or compromise his relationship with God. That's why James says, you have not because you do not ask. That's asking in prayer. Or worst of all, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And here is where we saw the most monstrous of all behaviors. Here is a person who is so set on his own desires that he's willing even to use prayer. This gift that God has given us so that we can draw lovingly near to our God only to manipulate God to get what he wants and taking something that should be used to exalt God and using it to exalt ourselves, that, as we have seen, is the essence of idolatry. What James is describing here, I have called a deviant devotion. We're called to be devoted to the Lord as his children, to love him, to follow him with all our heart. But our desires, especially our sinful desires, have a way of leading our hearts away from sincere devotion to God. And this is manifested in broken relationships with one another and broken relationships with God. James is going to tell us how to come back from this deviant devotion. That's the point of these 10 verses. He's going to tell us how to come back, how to correct, so that we can live and love God truly. In verses 1 through 3, he's shown us the problem of a deviant devotion. We talked about that for just a second right now. Then, as we saw last week, he comments on this problem by showing us the travesty of a deviant devotion. He wants to know how bad it is that we who are supposed to be fully devoted to the Lord, loving him with all our hearts, are instead following our own sinful desire. And James tells us exactly how bad this is, using a single word as he starts verse 4, adulteresses. That's what he calls us. He doesn't say, actually, you adulterous people. It's just a single word in the Greek New Testament, adulteresses. He's calling us out. He says that we're practicing spiritual adultery. We're like a wife who's supposed to be faithful to her husband, but we've gone off with another man. In fact, we saw last week these Jewish believers were very familiar with what God had told them about this kind of adultery. There are several places in their Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, where God has accused his people of being an unfaithful wife and not just a wife who had been deceptively seduced into an illicit relationship, that she didn't want. In the Old Testament, God says that his people Israel were so bad, they were like an unfaithful wife who took all that he had lovingly and graciously given to her to rescue her and save her and beautify her and took those things and made herself a prostitute. She went looking for other lovers. James sets all of the theological and emotional weight of this metaphor, familiar in the minds of his readers, showing them what is really going on. They think that their friendship with the world is something God winks at, something that doesn't bother him that much. We sometimes think the same thing. 
something he will understand. After all, God knows how weak we are. He's okay with it. We think of God as this, this grandfather, okay? I've been a grandfather now for what? Less than two years, okay? I already know. I feel it inside. I'm not really going to get onto these kids. Uh, you know, I, that day is over. Uh, if they do something wrong, I'm like, send them to their parents. But we just love these kids. We just want to dote on them. We feel God's that way with us. You know, he's like, you know, they're okay. I, I'll, just, I'll just forgive them. No, Christ had to die to procure that forgiveness. Sin is serious. And we're this way about sin. We take our flirtation with the world far too lightly. We think too lightly of our desire for the world's wealth. We don't consider that God might think about the fact that we spend far too much time finding pleasure in toys and games and hobbies and other pastimes than we find in him, that he's okay with that. But James tells us in verse 4, do you not know that the friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And, and friendship here isn't just a casual relationship. It's not like your Facebook friends. This is, this is first century true friendship, an investment of time and interest. This is like your best friend. And when your highest love is given even in friendship to another person or thing besides the one who you ought to have as your greatest love, this, James would tell us, is the essence of of idolatry, and God is jealous for his own glory when we do that. That's why he says in verse 5, do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us? He most likely refers here to the fact that God's jealousy is awakened when we take the devotion that belongs to him and we give it to someone or something else. But as bad as that sounds, In verse 6, God has already devised a way back for us from a deviant devotion. It's, it's, It's a very hopeful center of this text, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now listen, grace isn't some substance that we get, okay? Grace is God's favor that is expressed in multiple different ways. In this context, God's favor is giving us the means to come back from a deviant devotion, giving us the heart to love him. And did you notice there what he just said? The grace that God gives in this context is a work in us that makes us yearn for him to be devoted to him. That's what he means by giving us more grace. So how do we avail ourselves of this grace? How do we have the ability from God to be devoted to him, to love him with all our heart, not to wander into into sin like an adulterous wife? The answer is in James's quotation of Proverbs 3, 34, which is what he's quoting here. God is not going to give a heart of devotion to the proud. He's going to give a heart of devotion to the humble. And this promise that the grace leading to a right love for God and a right love for others is poured out on the humble is the guiding principle that leads us back to a deviant, back from a deviant devotion. So finally, we see in verses 7 through 10, the healing of a deviant devotion. And that's what we'll spend our time looking at today.
the healing of a deviant devotion. So let's look carefully at these last verses of the passage. Notice what he says. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, that at the beginning of this section, James says, submit yourselves. Then look at the end. He says something very similar. Humble yourselves. That's the verb form of the same word we just saw in verse 6, where James says he gives grace to the humble. At the end of this section, he says, humble yourselves. This creates an inclusio, which many of you know is a literary device in ancient writing where a main point would be brought out by including it at the beginning of the list or the section and at the end of the list or the section. And here we find a grouping of many admonitions. You see the verb submit, resist, draw near, cleanse, purify, be wretched, mourn, weep, humble yourselves. And at the beginning of this group of admonitions, we find submit yourselves. And at the end, we find humble yourselves. You know what this list is about? This list, this whole list is about humble submission. Now, why do you think James is going to tell us how to heal our deviant devotion, our messed up love, the fact that we don't love God like we should because we put other loves before him? Why do you think James doesn't talk about love? Instead, he talks about humble submission. He just called us adulteresses. Why isn't he talking about having the right kind of love? The answer to that question is profound, especially for us who have inherited a culture that does not understand how love truly works. But once again, God has drawn back the curtain to show us what is really going on. How do you love God when you don't love God? Has anybody ever asked themselves that question? Do you ever feel beat up when you hear somebody say, you need to love God more, or you're not loving him enough, or not loving him in the right way? How do I love God when I don't love God? At least I don't love him like I should. How do you love your neighbor when you really don't love your neighbor? How do you love what pleases God when you love other things instead? How do you make yourself love when you don't love? The answer may not occur to us because our culture teaches us that to love something means to feel loving toward that thing so that I want to embrace it. How convenient. It's easy to act loving towards someone when I already feel loving. I don't have to work at that kind of love. But a love driven by loving feelings is not very lasting because it endures only as long as the feelings endure. That's why, sadly, men and women pledge their lifelong devotion to each other in wedding ceremonies all over the country. But later they decide to part ways. And, and most often the reason is we just don't love one another anymore. What they really mean is we just don't feel loving toward each other anymore. And for a believer, 
the answer to that would be, what does that have to do with it? Why does that mean you have to break up the marriage? We should be asking, is that even real love? Think for a minute about how wrong it is to have a love based on feelings. If we are commanded by God to love him and love our neighbor, how can my obedience to that command be based upon whether I feel like that command, based on whether or not I feel loving? It cannot. If love is a command that I can obey, then there must be loving acts that I can obediently do to love something or someone. In other words, because I am commanded to love, there must be a way to show love in response to that command. And my love for what I am commanded to love grows as my obedience grows. You see, true love and submissive obedience always walk hand in hand. True love and submissive obedience walk hand in hand. That's called devotion. And we see this devotion in the scripture. I'll show you. Let's look for a a minute, a couple of passages. Go back to the great Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Shema is the word for hear. And this is Israel's centerpiece of their theology. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your soul and with all your might. And then we see after that, in most English translations in your Bible, the little conjunction and. Look at verse 6. And. The words that I command you to this day shall be on your heart. That little word and takes on a lot of meaning in the Hebrew language. Let me show you what I mean. This is going to be a little techie, okay? But I think some of you would enjoy this. Uh, this is the text in Hebrew of the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6. Reading from right to left, which is what you do in Hebrew, the Hebrew text sounds a little awkward to the English reader because it starts with a verb. And they shall be the words these that I command you, and so forth. And the word and is represented by a single little letter called a vav. And this little vav is normally prefixed to a noun or a pronoun or a verb in Hebrew telling the reader how one sentence or phrase connects in meaning to another. It's actually like a little hook in Hebrew, chaining words and word groups. And it can be and, but, therefore, although, etc. A lot of different ways you interpret it, depending on the markings. Notice that it's attached not to a noun, but to a verb. This tells us that the flow of thought from verse 5 continues into verse 6. So to understand the relationship between verses 5 and 6, it is better to translate the vav here as thus or so, which more strongly establishes the connection between the two verses. Now, what does all this mean? It means we could read the verse like this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So, therefore, thus. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down when you rise. Now, you see how that works then? The call to love God with all your heart, soul, and might results in obedience to God's commands. Now, Jesus puts it much more simply. 
in John 14, when he tells his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, I know you're used to reading that verse and thinking, of course, if you love Jesus, you will obey him. Love motivates obedience, and that's true. But I want you to hear what I'm saying this morning. I'm not simply saying that love motivates obedience. I'm also saying that obedience motivates love. Obedience increases devotion. Why does Jesus famously say, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Notice that serving and loving are almost synonymous. To serve a master, to offer submissive obedience, is to love a master, to be devoted to a master. And John tells us in 1 John 2, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. And in, in, in 1 John, by the way, knowing and loving are very similar. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God, that is his love for God, is perfected. How is it perfected? By keeping his word. How do you learn to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? The answer is you begin to obey God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To devote your time and energy to him, to seek him in prayer and through his word, like you know he desires, like he teaches us in his word. Not for his sake, but for your sake he gives this to us, that we might draw near to him you find that your love for God increases when you're obeying him. How do you learn to love people that God says you should love? You know, people are not very easy to love sometimes. Family aren't easy to love sometimes. You begin, though, to obey God's commands regarding brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray for one another. Be kind to one another. Forgive one another. Help one another. Restore one another you will find that your love for others will increase. C.S. Lewis says something very similar in his classic book, Mere Christianity. This is what he writes. Lewis says, I cannot learn to love my neighbor as myself till I learn to love God. And I cannot learn to love God except by learning to obey him. Do not waste your time, he says, bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. In the same way, Lewis, a little bit later in the book, says people are told they ought to love God. They cannot find any such feeling in themselves. What are they to do? The answer is the same as before. Act as if you did. Do not sit trying to manufacture feelings. Ask yourself, if I were sure that I loved God, what would I do? When you have found the answer, go and do it. And if I, with some fear and trembling, can offer one adjustment to C.S. Lewis here, I would clarify, and I feel like I'm on biblical grounds for this, 
when you have found the answer in the scriptures, go and do it. In other words, obey it. Lewis perhaps gives the impression that we can randomly come up with what we feel we ought to be doing if we loved God or loved other people. But God already tells us what we ought to be doing. And what we ought to be doing will always lead us to serve others and love others and to serve Him and to love Him. We just need to submit to what God has said and begin expressing our devotion to God. So if a husband and wife, back to the the illustration, if they say we no longer love each other, that's a pitiful reason to separate. They took an oath to love one another. So they need to behave as the scripture instructs them and get back to loving. If you do not love brothers or sisters in your church family because they are difficult to love, there is something about them that maybe rubs you the wrong way or maybe there's a disagreement or, or you don't have a lot in common, whatever it is, that is an act of obedience to the word of God, begin to live out the one another's of the New Testament in their life. Target them with one anothering. Build up one another, Romans 14, 19. Comfort one another, 1 Thessalonians 4, 18. Encourage one another, 1 Thessalonians 5, 11. Show hospitality toward one another, 1 Peter 4, 9. Pray for one another, James 5, 16. And several times it says, greet one another with a kiss. And that ought to get things going pretty quickly if you start obeying that. But the point is, you begin to love when you begin to obey. And that, James tells us, is how to heal a deviant devotion. Now, with all of that in mind, we are in a position to unpack for just a few more minutes verses 7 through 10. Do you want to learn to be devoted to the Lord? Then humbly submit to the Lord, and you will grow in your devotion. And what we find in these verses, then, are three ways that you need to submit to the Lord to heal a deviant devotion. First of all, notice he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, remember, submit yourselves and humble yourselves. That's the inclusio that tells you what the topic is. But sandwiched in between that inclusio really are three commands that heal a deviant devotion. The first is resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, now pay close attention here. Again, I, we, we hear these verses taken out of context, randomly applied to a lot of different things, but there's a context for what he says here. There's a significance to what he says here that's germane to the text. We're used to using this verse as a proof text for how to handle temptation. Say no to the devil, he'll run away from you, and temptation will go away. But that's not what he's saying in the context. James has already told us how to handle temptation. Way back in chapter 1, verse 14, James says that each of us is tempted when he is lured away and enticed by his own desire. We can't say the devil made me do it. The sad truth is we wanted to sin. It came from inside. Temptation comes from within my fallen heart. So what does this mean? Well, the devil wants us to sin, there's no doubt. He wants to lead us into rebellion against our creator, but he cannot force us to sin. We're children of God. Our Redeemer is one day going to vanquish the devil forever. He's already a defeated enemy. So when I oppose him, when I say no to the devil, I'm not going to commit that sin. I'm not going to think like that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to go over there. I'm not going to say that to that person. Whatever it is. He has to retreat because he cannot force us. He's powerless to do anything. 
If we sin, it's because we wanted to. But here's the point of the text. We are to resist the devil as an act of submissive obedience to God. Our refusal to sin is itself an act of devotion. James isn't randomly giving us pointers all of a sudden on how to handle temptation. He's giving us command that we must obey if we're going to heal a deviant devotion. The devil is like the commander of the defeated enemy forces who comes into your camp and tries to order you around. But why would you take orders from him? Tell him to get lost. Because you serve your loving captain who has defeated the devil forever. But there's something else we must do in humble submission to God in verse 8. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now put those two things together. You see how this works? The devil flees from you and God draws near to you. You push away from the devil and he flees from you. You draw closer to God and he draws closer to you. In the scripture, the verb draw near is an Old Testament expression that in a religious context, refers almost exclusively to worship. We draw near to God through prayer, which is pictured in the Bible as coming before God, bowing before his throne. And as we pray to God, we commit ourselves to him, promising him that we will live to do his will and we will serve him and him alone and love him primarily. We dedicate ourselves daily to him and we consciously live throughout each day as if our time and our energy and our resources are at his disposal. He gave them to us anyway. We're simply recognizing his ownership and giving them back to him. All that is accomplished when we yield in prayer. And we are saying, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord. We're saying, I surrender all. We're saying like David in Psalm 63, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. Do you believe that this morning? God's steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands, which is, the, which is the biblical expression for prayer. They would stand and pray like this. Don't you see that if you are pouring your heart out before the Lord like this on a daily basis, that your devotion will grow? You might say, you know, I read the, Psalms, uh, the words of Psalm 63, but I have to be honest, I'm not feeling it. I don't feel the words of Psalm 63. I, I just don't love God the same level that David does. Okay, granted. But will you submit to God anyway? Will you seek him even as a sheer act of obedience? Even if you at this moment don't feel loving like you feel that like you want to. Why do you think God gave us the words of Psalm 63 to begin with? He wants you to know the kind of language we use when we draw near to him. Pray the words of Psalm 63. Spend time in prayer with God, praying the Psalms after you read them. You may even feel like you're forcing yourself to do it at first, but that's okay. 
because that's the thing we don't understand. Forcing ourselves, training ourselves to form this spiritual habit for the right reason is itself a submissive act of devotion. And when we submit to God in this way, when we draw near to him, James promises God will draw near to us. This is one of the most precious promises in all the word of God. James takes the verb, you see this? He takes the verb that's normally used for God's children coming near to him in devotion. And in the same sentence, he uses it for God's coming near to us. Now, obviously, God is omnipresent. And for the believer, we have the continual presence of God. We have the witness of the, the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We have, we're we're, we're, in, we're in, at, in union with Christ. So what is James describing here when he says that God draws near to us? He's describing a closeness to God, a loving relationship with God that grows as you continue to seek him like this. You will realize a nearness to God, a confidence in his love through prayer and a continual yielding to him that is unlike anything else in your life. So in verse 4, our deviant devotion made us adulteresses, the enemies of God, because we were drawing near to or giving our heart to something else other than God as our highest devotion. But only a few verses later, Here, James promises that if we will draw near to God, he will draw near to us. He will not hang back like a wounded husband, husband, unwilling to forgive. He will embrace us and comfort us and assure us. So you might not feel loving like you want to, because a feeling of love makes things much easier. We don't have any problem going after something we feel loving toward. But God is interested in our submission to him in acts of love and devotion. So when we submit to him by resisting the devil on the one hand and drawing near to him on the other, we begin to realize this loving relationship with him as he draws near to us. So submission to God involves pushing back against sin or the devil and drawing near to God. But there's one other idea. He says in the rest of verses 8 and 9, essentially one thing. He says, you need to resist the devil and draw near to God while turning away from sin. And all of the verbs in verses 8 and 9 have to do with confession and repentance, turning away from sin. Verse 8, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, You double-minded. James is borrowing language from the context of worship that these Jewish believers knew. Psalm 24 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? In other words, who's going to draw near God in his temple to worship him? And the answer is in verse 3. He who has what? Clean hands and a pure heart. That's the language of James 4.8. James says then, clean your hands. Purify your hearts. The meaning is not hard to grasp here. Just as those coming into the presence of God in the Old Testament did not dare do what was dishonoring to God in their hearts while they came to worship, James says that when you draw near to God while resisting the devil, you need to confess your sin. You need to come clean before God. You need to tell him how you have sinned by loving the wrong things or maybe loving good things more than him. 
You need to confess your spiritual adultery and turn from it. The term double-minded here refers directly to what James already speaks about back in verse 4, trying to serve two masters, trying to love the world, to be a friend of the world, and love God at the same time. James tells us that there is a way in which we need to turn from our sin of a deviant devotion. He says in verse 9, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Here, he's borrowing heavily from the language of the Old Testament prophets who call upon God's people to turn back to him in repentance. Verse 9 isn't given to us because God wants us to walk around weeping and gloomy all the time. Verse 9 is in the context of drawing near to God in repentance. This is what our confession of sin and turning to God should look like. You want to know what your heart should look like when you really are concerned about your sin? When you see it like God sees it, this describes what you should feel like. If you say, I just, I just, don't, I just don't feel that, practice feeling it then. Obey what he says. He tells us here as a command, be wretched and mourn and weep. When have you been completely broken over your sin? Maybe you feel guilty and ashamed over your lack of love for God and your flirtation with the world when you read James 4, but is your spirit crushed over that sin? When is the last time you wept over sin? Devotion to the Lord is a matter of the affections, and the affections have to do with what we love and what we hate. And a growing love for the Lord also cultivates a growing hatred, a loathing for what the Lord hates. The more you grow in your devotion to the Lord, the more you learn to despise sin and mourn over it and even weep over the wretchedness of your own heart. That's what James is telling us. But this is all part of the healing of a deviant devotion. When James says in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you, this connects back to verse 7. To submit to God and humble yourself before God is essentially the same idea. But then James adds this little promise at the end, and he will exalt you. I find this ironic. The passage starts out back in verse 1 describing the life of someone who is so eager to fulfill his own wayward desires. He doesn't care who he ruins to get it. It's the picture of a life that is destroying itself and everyone around it, including his relationship with God. But at the end of the passage, God is the one lifting him up because he is willing to lay down his arms and surrender. He was willing to obediently say to himself, no to the devil, and yes to God. Every one of us struggles against a deviant devotion. Our, our, our devotion is never 100% perfect before God. We know what God wants. We often go in the opposite direction. It's not a knowledge problem. It's a love problem. And the way to heal a love problem is not to wait around to start feel loving. You'll never know God that way. You'll never be close to him in that way. If you're not serving him, you're serving something or someone else instead. The way to heal a love problem is to devote yourself to God submissively, to obey his call to seek him and know him. It means for many of us, time with the Lord this week, confessing and forsaking sin as a step of faithful obedience. Time with God, humbly praying back, 
Psalms of devotion to him. Time every day committing yourself to the commands of scripture which lead us to serve God and to serve one another. That's how to heal a love problem. And we should be so thankful that James pulls back the curtain to show us what is going on. That's how you know the joy of God's drawing near you. And that's what it means to live up to your faith. Father, thank you for...